Hey everybody, welcome to The Blender Report, where news meets rational thinking. I'm your host, Jonathan Harvey. This is your co-host, Liam DeBoer. Liam, what's up, man? Not too much, dude. I hope everybody is ready to listen to us trash Trudeau for about an hour straight. <laughs> There's been a lot that has happened in the last week, including him blaming misinformation for negative polls, uh, that the also the Liberal and NDP coalition staying intact after a pharmacare deal was made, uh, he also announced 3.2 billion in support for Ukraine, as well as the appeal for the Emergencies Act being deemed unjustified. However, if before we get into things, you wouldn't mind giving us a kind review on Spotify or subscribing to our channel on YouTube, wherever you're watching, that would be greatly appreciated. All right, let's get into things. So first off, Trudeau, during a brief visit to Alberta, sat down with the Edmonton podcast host Ryan Jesperson. He refused to admit that the Liberals were struggling in the polls and said that Albertans are being fooled by Premier Smith and stated that Canadian media is under attack by conspiracy theorists. I thought we'd go through each one of these one by one. So first off, him being in denial about disapproval ratings. Trudeau dismissed the negative polls as inaccurate or driven by ignorance and misinformation, drawing comparisons to his 2015 victory despite trailing in polls before the election. He attributed public opposition to his policies to quote-unquote anger and outrage fueled by external forces, implying voters are manipulated rather than genuinely dissatisfied. He refused to concede that the polls might reflect genuine public sentiment or that his government needs to adjust course. So do you think he is just manipulating things and he genuinely believes that he is more popular than the polls show? Or do you think that maybe he is so isolated in people in his own party that he does kind of have a false sense of how well things are going? I think it's a combination of both. So that's actually a good question because I wasn't really thinking about framing it that way. So the reality is I think he knows that there is some distaste, you know, for, for you know the Trudeau camp and the liberals. And and you know why? Is because every time he goes somewhere, someone's screaming some <laughs> nasty shit at the dude, right? And it's it's constant. Like I remember there's that time um just before Christmas, he was in BC for some reason, and he was just having like an impromptu dinner at some place. And people found out at 10 p.m. at night, and all and like two, three hundred people went down there to mob the place just to give him shit. And it's like, you can't get me out of bed at 10 o'clock. Like, yeah. no There's no way I'm leaving my house at 10 p.m. Even to go give Trudeau shit, that's not going to happen. So for me, it's like, look, the guy has to know that that people don't like him. And the other the other reason I'll say that, too, is you can, you can, when we look at polls, you and I both know the polls, they change, right? And they're all... No, so they're, they're always framed as Canadians believe this or that. And it's like, well, realistically, it's a thousand people that yeah. think that you polled and you're extrapolating that to... Exactly. Polls. And I think you have to ask like who your, who your audience is, what, the kind of, what kind of people actually answer polls, how many of them would lean one way or the other. And I, th- I think there's, some, there's definitely some wiggle room in there. But the thing is, it's every poll yeah. and it's all the time. And, and the, other, the other side of that, too, is, you know, if this was just on social media, he could be like, well, that's an echo chamber. That's just a bunch of right-wing people that are crazy. They're mega supporters. Whatever. Don't worry about them. We shouldn't even tolerate those people. Cool. But the thing is, is it's multiple polls from, from a lot of different organizations. So the reality is those are supposed to be nonpartisan, right? They're supposed to be neutral, rather. You know, so I, I, don't, I don't think that he's so foolish as to believe that every one of them is off by 80 90%. 
consistently, and he's just been getting worse over the last six months. I don't think he actually believes that. I think he knows. But at the same time, I and then think, it's just gas, and then it's just trying to gaslight people into the opposite. I think so, but I, I, th I also do believe that he has to. I think he does buy into his own bullshit, right? And and I I think what's interesting about being a politician at that level is it's almost like you're you're like a fighter, like you're in the UFC, right? So if you're gonna go fight, even if you're kind of a little long in the tooth and you're getting a little old and you're a bit slower, if you don't believe you're gonna go kill that guy in that cage, you do not get in that cage. Yeah. And that means you sort of have to have a false sense of belief in yourself, a little a little like. Overconfident would maybe be a good way of looking at it. And I believe it's the same thing with politicians because look, even if the guy's loved, in a standard Western country, the votes are split pretty much 50-50, which means even if he's absolutely adored, even people on the other side don't mind him, he's still pissing off, you know, 40-50% of the people every single day. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's just part of that's just part of the deal when you're at that level. And your whole life is exposed. So I think you have to kind of build a set of tools that allow you to operate up there. You know, and be able to take a lot of the a lot of the rhetoric and a lot of the, the talk that people are going to throw at you every day, and just find a way to deal with it. So I think he's a little overconfident. So I think I think that does play a role. But the other big thing is he knows he owns mainstream media. So anytime he is on air, he needs to do everything he can to pitch his liberal narrative. He's got to convince people that no, 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 everyone is supporting me. Get on the bandwagon. No, 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 don't don't vote for those guys. Everyone here is supporting me. Those guys don't know what they're doing. They're misinformed. And then he's just going to kind of keep pushing that narrative through the mainstream. I think that's just that's politics, right? It's just a tool he's got to use, and he knows if he can if he if he if he admits defeat in any sense in the mainstream media, where does that go, right? Yeah. So well, that leads into another aspect of the conversation where he alleged that a deliberate undermining of mainstream media by quote unquote conspiracy theorists. He claimed that these bad actors aim to prevent agreement on "quote unquote" common facts that we used to that we used to get from the likes of CBC and CTV. Though he offered no specifics as to what these facts might be, so again, this goes into his concept that there should just be a central authority always under his rule that is in charge of everything, whether it be from climate change response to gender to media. It's just like everything should be under this central umbrella. Yeah, I mean, let's be realistic. The interview really only further highlights why it's so important that we have alternative media, why guys like you and I are talking. And sure, we can sensationalize things a little bit. We curse and swear. We're not perfect, whatever. You know what I mean? Like we don't fit quite into the, the media space. Um, but you need these alternative opinions because here's what I think people miss when he says stuff like that. You made, you made a good point there. It's not just about saying, well, we should all have one agreed upon idea like we used to with CBC and CTV. Well, what you're saying there is that everyone should listen to what the government's saying, for sure. That, that's for starters. But the, 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 bigger, the bigger problem for me here is everything is captured by the media. Like you said, whether it's gender, whether it's environment, whether it's economics, whether it's who to vote for, it, it doesn't really matter because the one thing that every issue in public has in common is they all filter through the media. So when this man says, well, we should be able to control the media and there should just be, there should only be one narrative that people are listening to and the rest of these guys are conspiracy theorists. What he is actually saying to your point is that he needs to control everything. Mm -hmm. And then you need to listen to his opinion on all of it through the media channel. So it's actually, um, Pretty egregious. It's pretty wild. Well, I, I sent a excerpt from a book that I was reading by Frederick Hayek, who was one of the leading uh, intellectuals in about the 1940s on the dangers of central planning and central authorities. And he said how, quote, in a planned system, we cannot confine collective action to the tasks on which we agree but are forced to produce agreement on everything in order that any action can be taken at all. And what he's saying there is that 
you know, we've got this large society and if we're supposed to then take on the problems that everybody agrees are problems, we can't even get started because everybody has such differing perspectives so that any central planned economy or system of government, they have to force agreement through public messaging, through propaganda, in order to essentially gaslight the population into believing this is this is the issue at hand, this is how we need to solve it, that there's one problem and there's one solution. Right. And we we know both of those ends of this very well. And yeah, like you look at it and go, every single authoritarian, tyrannical country of the past, all was built on the back of a propaganda machine. That is a very, very central element to tyranny. Yeah. And I don't trust anybody that sits there and says they have an issue with different perspectives or that everybody needs to have the common facts or whatever, because there's no... Truth is best found when opposing ideas conflict and you find out where the limits to each idea are by bouncing them off of one another. Right. But if all you have is one narrative, one idea, one solution, and there's no other opposition or questioning, everything falls apart very quickly there. Yeah, I mean, actually, I think you, you make, you're making a good point. You made a lot of good points today. <laughs> like the sort of fundamental issue with what he's saying is we shouldn't have free speech. That is, that is in a nutshell, what he's saying. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have free speech and you should not be able to challenge my ideas. And if you do, you're a conspiracy theorist. Just like if you don't get vaccinated, you're a racist homophobe. Just like, just nasty rhetoric he's throwing at people again. So yeah, I mean, overall, um, it's insane. I can't even believe this guy says this stuff on air. It's wild. Yeah. And then the last part of the interview that sparked some blowback was how he deviated from past liberal approaches by claiming he, not Alberta's own industries or government, understands the province's best interests. So Trudeau's central argument hinged on the belief that oil is becoming unprofitable and that Alberta needs to embrace his net zero vision. He downplayed accusations of harming the province, stating it's about attracting future investors who prioritize sustainability and further implied that Albertans would naturally transition to alternative energy if not for government interference. Trudeau capped off this segment by stating that Albertans were being fooled by Premier Smith into disliking him and his policies. I thought that was probably one of the most telling aspects of, of, of the interview. Um, you know, even just the idea that if it wasn't for this, the market, the people of Alberta would hop completely on board with the net zero. And you're like, like no. But that kind of goes to your original point, like how disconnected is this guy from reality? Mm -hmm. Well, fairly far, obviously. Like you walk into Alberta and I think you gotta ask yourself a question like, what is their primary industry? Energy, oil, that's where they're making their money, great. So what's the province that's having the, mo the, the largest influx of new people? Alberta, why? Because the way they're operating in comparison to the rest of Canada. It's like this guy is so disconnected from what Canadians want because they're literally going there to get away from all the other shit that these other provinces are doing. They're trying to get out from under this guy's, or out from his grasp, you know, beyond, beyond his grasp, brother. So, I mean, for me, it's, it's pretty wild that he would go in there and say that. He also called them, yeah, like when you sit there and call an entire province of people foolish and that you've got all the answers. And you and I have had this conversation. The further you are away from actually, from the location you're trying to control, the worse you're going to do. Yeah. So it's like when you have top-down leadership in Canada, you're not gonna do a great job if you're just trying to run the province of Alberta. That's why you have a premier. And then there's municipal governments there as well. You, you, you need that type of, 
you need leadership to be in their own communities in the sense so that they understand what the people want and how to actually kind of move it forward, how to, how to best, you know, support society, because that is the intention of government. So when this guy is saying, well, I know better than this premier, it's like, well, actually, no, everyone's moving there. Um, oil's their primary industry. Oil's still trading at like $80 a barrel. There's no, there's not, there is a ton of money in oil, in fact. It's wild that you're even there saying it. And then, you know, I guess I also find it a little frustrating with this guy that he goes in there and says, well, there's this, everyone would naturally just jump on board with this. Like, in what world does it make sense that we would jump on board with your green initiatives? Like what, what, and, and you could, maybe you could, you could help me out here. In what aspect of society are those initiatives benefiting citizens of Canada? We're not even supposed to believe that they presently benefit them. We're supposed to believe that they benefit the citizens of Canada decades upon decades from now when we reverse course of the climate change. I don't think anybody's sitting around saying right now that the energy grid would be better off being completely on quote unquote sustainable energy or that the economy would i mean everything in that section relies on or sector sorry relies on subsidies because there is no there isn't a big enough demand for it market right. demand for it so i don't even think they're making the claim that it benefits canadians today i think it's this is for the better future, this is for the future 40, 50 years down the line. Right, so this guy walks into the province of people that are probably, probably maybe the hardest working province based on how they make their money, if, at, if you had to think about it from that scale, yeah. if you were just looking at it. That, anyway, um, and you're telling them that they're all, they're all ready and willing to make the sacrifice today for these future generations, which none of us really believe is even true. And you're saying this from, and I, I hate to say this, but from your ivory tower, from a guy that's worth almost $100 million, that does whatever he wants, flies on his private jet all over the world, and you're saying that you're in tune with what these people want and that they're willing to make the sacrifice because you are. What an asshat this guy is. Yeah. He's so disconnected. I, if Canada votes for this guy again for prime minister, I'm out of this country so fast. <laughs> I, won't, I won't be uh, far behind you, brother. Uh, so that actually leads into our second story of the day which is how the Liberals in NDP coalition stays intact after a deal was reached on Pharmacare, making pivotal steps towards a national Pharmacare program in Canada. The deal ensures free access to diabetes medication and birth control for all Canadians with a health card. The legislation for this program is set to be introduced in the House of Commons next week. This collaboration is a crucial aspect of the Supply and Confidence Pact, with the NDP supporting key Liberal votes in exchange for progress on shared priorities. The initial program is backed by approximately $800 million and aims uh, to address concerns about costs and is a significant stride towards a 40 potentially 40 billion dollar per year pharmacare initiative so is there any discernible difference between the liberal and ndp party at this point no i mean uh, i think my my challenge here is that people didn't vote for ndp and they didn't vote for these policies but they're being ushered in to the tune of 800 million this year which it'll probably be a little more uh and then up to 40 billion which is a thousand dollars a head per canadian when you do the math so it's an extra thousand bucks a year and look I don't want to discount the value of providing people with um, free healthcare because I think it's important. It's just when you look at the reality of how we're doing I this. I first have to just interject and just say, I hate the concept of free healthcare because even like you're just saying there, there is a upfront cost on it. Yes. It's, it's, it's not free. It's they're taking your money beforehand yes. and promising you a service on the other end of it. Yes. Well, that's a very good point. I guess what I should say is I can appreciate that 
people who need access to healthcare, they can get it when they need it without yeah. having money. Because yeah. you look at a lot of things in the States, and I hear what you're saying, but like if you look at it down there, like if you have to go stay, like I think if you had a baby down in the US right now, I think it's like 30, 40 grand. Like yeah. I think that's what it costs to have a baby. For sure. And I know you can have insurance, but like you don't know how whatever everybody's situation is, or like if you have a heart problem or you have this or that, you have to be, or if you, you I don't know, if you have an accident somewhere and you get flown out from a ski hill because you do this or that, like it's cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's like, I don't particularly agree with that because give me uh, don't get me wrong like I think yeah. that system in, in the that is definitely it has its own bag of issues it becomes more predatory yeah. as well so so and I, I guess that there's this thing I guess like I know what you're saying yes it costs us money and my biggest issue is not that we pay for it it's how poorly run it is yeah it's that it's our biggest expense so 300 about 350 billion dollars per year comes out of Canadian taxpayer dollars to go to healthcare, but it's it's a brutal system. Like you talk to anybody that travels around the world that uses alternative healthcare, it's it is so terrible in this country. They're doing such a bad job, and it's gotten to this point that I don't even know how they fix it. So it's a really poor use of our funds. You know what I mean? And then you throw another program in there, it's going to end up falling down the same, going down the same path, right? They're going to end up charging. Like right now, it's eight hundred million, but I know it's not. But then say it's forty billion a year. That's going to climb. It's going to be more and more and more. And the thing is, the pharma companies are going to charge more money because they're just dealing with the governments. And there's going to be, you know, there's going to be corruption involved in this for sure. So it's this weird thing, right? Like, on one hand, I'm like, yes, I do. Think people need access to medicine. One of these is diabetes medication. I mean, you know, I have my feelings about how a lot of people take care of their own body and that a lot of them shouldn't get diabetes, but that's obviously type two, not type one. So I understand some people are just sort of stuck with this. And yeah, you want them to have access to these things so they can stay, like, live a healthy as possible life and live longer. I, I get all that. It's not that. That's not the problem. It's how we manage things, how poorly we implement these systems. And there's just going to be another one of those programs that looks good, um, but it's just going to cost Canadians way more, a disproportionate amount more than we're getting in value. You know, that's that's kind of my, my, my biggest qualm. But I just think we do ourselves no favors by comparing ourselves to say America and just saying it's free and I'm not saying this isn't a just pushback against what you were saying I agree with what you were saying I just mean in general it's kind of a very common trope that Canadians have of to try to push back against Americans being like well our health care is free and you're like again first of all it's not free the average Canadian pays 50% in taxes annually nothing that the government does is free no and on that aspect as well you know I mentioned it where they're taking your money up front and providing you a service on the back end which highly disincentivizes proper service because like we're seeing the average wait time in an Ontario hospital is like 23 hours or something like that. It's ridiculous. As of last year. Um, you know, I recently was, I had not been this sick in a long time. Like I was throwing up and violently ill for four days. I couldn't even, I couldn't even watch TV because I was just in so much. Like I couldn't stop just thinking about the pain I was in and my roommate was like, hey, should I take you to the hospital? And I was like, that is the last place in, on <laughs> earth I want to be right now. Like sitting in a waiting room for what, 12 hours minimum before even just getting hooked up to an IV, like nothing, like there's not really gonna be much on the back end there. It's just gonna be like, oh, wait it out. If you're not better in two weeks, come back. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's just one of these things where it, it comes down to with zero prior messaging about giving people 
taking telling people to take their health into their own hands and stuff i think both systems whether it be the private or the public completely fail to actually promote health i agree i mean this is we we have this like you know, we don't like to actually treat the problem. We just treat the the illness or whatever you want to call it. How are they? How are they say they treat the symptom? Like you know, whatever the underlying issue is, we don't really resolve that. I think we are all pretty much on the same. Anybody who's really paying attention is on the same page that we're basically being we're basically being um, farmed into this into this like medical system from a young age. You know what I mean? They want to get you on medicine. They want to get you on something. It seems to be the way. Um, it's unfortunate, but you also look at how much power these big farm companies have. You kind of start understanding how that shakes out. But sort of back to the point, I guess a little more is, again, is just how badly and how how poorly they implement these systems, right? Like the bigger issue is not not the fact that people are getting access to medicine. It's how we do it here in Canada. It's how poorly everything is run. So it's just rather than fixing the system, which I imagine will start costing probably four hundred billion a year. So that's ten thousand dollars per Canadian. That's how much it costs every year for healthcare. Instead of actually fixing that, they're going to throw more money at it. So it's just going to be more money in this ecosystem, and it's not going to get any better. I, I guess the only thing is, how do you make it better? Like if you're thinking, okay, well, we disagree with the strategy. I don't think we should have the Pharmacare Act. I don't think it's necessary. But that being said, what is the better solution? How do you actually? Can you do anything to fix this system? So I think you and everything. Everything in human behavior comes down to incentive structures. Um, so you could even look at the government and go, okay, what's their incentive to provide health care? Well, if you are unhealthy and you rely on the government to keep you alive, then you are very indebted to them. If there is one party that is promising to prioritize your health, quote unquote, yeah. they actually have an incentive to now keep you unhealthy provide you the medication that you think you need in order to continue getting your vote for eternity. Uh, if the alternative is, say, probably a conservative party, which would cut that spending. Um, so they would actually have an incentive structure in that scenario to keep you unhealthy. But then on the back end, for as far as if you actually wanted to fix the health issues, um, which are just getting worse and worse by the day, then you have to incentivize it to individuals, whether that be, fuck, make people go in for a physical once a year, and if you hit certain markers, you get a tax break. Like, just be like, hey, and it makes sense from a financial standpoint as well. If you are healthy, you are not as much of a burden on the tax, on the on the healthcare system. You're saving us money year by year. I mean, I haven't gone to a hospital in five, six years. Good luck getting me on a prescription. The Canadian healthcare system is doing fucking nothing for me. <laughs> so get, why why shouldn't I have a tax incentive for not having to rely on your system, right? So I mean, you could look at it that way. No, I like that. It's a merit based health a merit based health system. Like, yeah. that's good. Yeah, like, well, that's, that's like, and, and, I like it. And why not why not make obese people pay more for for taxes or stuff? Obviously, you couldn't because it would be Everybody's extremely so delicate. It would be such it, an issue. And, and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, and it would be just political suicide. It's like, I, you and I could say talk shit about this, because that, but it's actually a good practical solution. But if you tried to apply it, you get eviscerated. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and that's even one thing, again, it just comes down to incentive structures no matter what. And I've said the same thing about education before, about being like, okay, the public education system is it is so bad the kids coming out of the school system are not intelligent they have they i think that school more or less just gives you behavioral issues lots of social anxiety and all of that kind of stuff but 
um, it's like, okay, if you wanted to fix the problem of kids getting education, give a tax break or tax incentive to parents that can properly homeschool their child. You know, it takes costs like 30 something thousand dollars a year or something in that range to put a kids through school for the year. You offer parents half of that. We'll give you $15,000 per child annually that you can get to pass our standardized tests from home. Mm -hmm. Well, the government just saved a fuck ton of money. The kids are better off educated wise, but again, that's not the governmental incentive. No, but I, I think I think you're making some good points, and I want people to, to to take that in and realize when you when you come up with these ideas, those are both really good ideas. And because our government's not applying them, that is that is your telltale sign that the government is not here to help you. Mm -hmm. Because if they were, these are the kinds of things that they would do. And I think this is everybody's sort of. I think this is the general miss people make in societies. They don't actually think about practical or pragmatic solutions to the problems we have. Because if they did, they would come up with some of the ones that you just did right now and they go, well, why doesn't our government do any of these things? And the only answer is because they're not here to help us. Yeah. They're here to maintain and take, they're here to maintain control and take more power whenever they can. Their only goal is to centralize power and give more access to their own resources. Because it's, it's literally no different than a corporation that all of a sudden gets, there's legal ambiguities around what they can do, they get off the hook, they're their own judge, they can't be held accountable. It, it's a complete sham. But anyways, moving on to our third story of the day. Trudeau made a surprise visit to Ukraine and pledges $3.2 billion in support. So during his visit to Kiev, he unveiled this security package, and according to the agreement, Canada is set to offer military assistance and financial support aimed at addressing Ukraine's balance of payments and budgetary requirements with the overarching goal of stabilizing its economy. Some of the... the you did a very good job of breaking down just the absolute mayhem of what this money is being spent on. Again, these are your tax dollars, people that $15 million of which is going to help build the National Museum to honor Ukrainians killed by the Soviet Union in 1932 to 1933. Sorry, man, you've got bigger problems right now. How is this even on your list of things to be paying for? Exactly. Even as Ukraine, let alone as Canada, as our taxpayer, the dollars I have to pay to our government that they rinse from my pocket are going to pay for a museum in Ukraine? Yeah. Come, come the fuck on. And then another $15 million, another $15 million to local financial service providers, agricultural businesses, and farmers to improve their financial stability, gender responsiveness, and resilience to climate risks. So we're starting to fund Ukrainian social programs now. This was a tricky one, too, so I had to sort of track and follow this one a little bit. Is They're actually giving money to an organization that, that raises money to do this stuff. Mm. So it's like, it's getting lost, it's, it's daisy chained down. So this money, what they're saying with that money is, we're just taking this from you guys and putting it in our pocket. Yeah. Okay, cool. That, that's literally <laughs> what's happening there. That's yeah. wild. And then $10 million to strengthening the systems for and delivery of mental health and psychological support in Ukraine. Like, there is no government programs, whether it's in Canada or Ukraine, that are showing help for mental health. Like, I mean, they say they're spending these monies in these areas and all that, but then you go, 
okay, you're doing more, you're saying you're spending more and all this kind of stuff, but mental health is getting worse by the day. So how does this add up to the fact that you guys are actually helping this problem at all? And yeah, so now we're paying for the therapy of Ukrainians, uh, $4 million to help Ukraine roll out a national digital planning and monitoring platform. This one was tricky. I know, this one was a weird one. I looked at this as I like, are you guys rolling out this so that people are putting in digital identification to some national database. That's how this came across. Yeah. It is very eerie sounding for sure. This bill was also about providing inclusive recovery plans um, that are aligned with, they said, national frameworks. But they also wanted to respond to the specific needs of women and girls, returning veterans, marginalized groups, um, and those displaced by war. So again, you're kind of spending another $4 million on implementing a digital identification system in a country you don't own. Again, this is coming out of our pocket in a country that you don't, we, it's not our country. And then also somehow again, about equality and social issues. What are we doing? Yeah, well, and then this leads into the funniest one of all, $4 million to establish a gender and diversity working group to, prom to promote gender transformative mine action in Ukraine. <laughs> <laughs> We need we need a gender like when you're coming when you're starting to deal with the problems of going okay there is mines all around our country that need to be addressed and removed safely like this just goes to show how insane these people are by just thinking they can just toss gender and social issues into every corner of society. I just wonder if like who in Ukraine right now that's been in a hot war for two years gives a flying fuck what people are calling them from a gender perspective. It's like, hey, I don't care if you're a guy or a girl, pick up a gun and go fight. Yeah. It's like, nah, we, gotta, we really gotta iron this stuff out, guys. This is the, we're really doing God's work here. What are you oh. thinking? <laughs> it's so funny, dude. Uh -huh. And then roughly $1 million to strengthen truth, transparency, <laughs> and democracy by enhancing fact-checking capabilities of Ukraine's media in order to better counter disinformation. So I wanna point out that <clears throat> I'm not against Ukraine, I'm not against Zelensky, it's not why I'm saying this, but since Zelensky's been in power, he has, um, he has what's the word I'm looking for? Um, stopped parties from running. He's basically um, kiboshed a couple Russian, pro-Russian parties from running, so he won't even let them run. He's like not allowing them in the race. And he's also stifled a bunch of Russian, any like Russian, uh, pro-Russian media in his country. And he's actually, he's pretty much nationalized media across the board, more so than they even have in Canada. So this to me is just like, what, what are they trying to turn, what are they trying to turn Ukraine into? You know it's part of the West now, but what are they doing? Yeah, well, they're, they're just trying to turn it into their own little satellite state, their, their own pawn on the checkboard. They're not trying to actually build it up into its own strong and sovereign nation that can deal with itself. It's again, one of those things where, just like we were talking about with the government and individuals, it's if you can have something or someone dependent on you, you own them. And I think that's what's happening here. Yeah, they're just buying them off. And, right? and yeah, and it's, it's so hilarious that they say, okay, we need to promote truth and transparency and democracy by strengthening our hold, our central hold on the narrative again. Again, you see this even, even over in, in, in them implementing these things in Ukraine. Well, it's wild to me because they say, they, they look, I'm not, I'm not a fan of what Putin's doing at all, but I do want to point out like just sort of the issue that you have here in the media, because what they say is that, well, Putin is nationalizing his media. Putin's lying to these people. Putin is, is, is 
you know, is pushing through this propaganda to convince everybody of X, Y, and Z. It's like, okay, but you guys are doing the same thing, and then you're taking money, again, this is the biggest problem, you're taking money of our, out of our pockets in Canada to go fund the propaganda machine that you have now in Ukraine. Look, I'm not saying either one is right or wrong, and I don't really care about that right now. The issue that I have is like, they point to him and like, oh, he's terrible and doing all these bad things. Yes, he is, but more specifically with the media, but it's like, they're doing the same thing. And well, uh, it's, that, it's that old Nietzschean concept of do not become the monster you seek to fight. And, yeah. and that's exactly my whole point on this here is like, I'm not pro-Russia, I'm not pro-Putin, but I'm not going to sit here and criticize Russia or another nation for doing the things that we're doing. Don't sit exactly. here and say you're authoritarian, you've got a stranglehold on your media while you're doing the exact same thing here. Like you're, we have no moral high ground in the West to criticize these nations from anymore. And that's why I just have no interest in criticizing those nations. It's not that they aren't doing things worthy of criticism. It's that, is it really my job to hold a foreign country accountable, the leader of a foreign country accountable for the same things that my leaders are doing. Yeah. And what's even no. and what's worse is actually that Canada is funding this type of stuff in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's it's it to me it's actually it is a little worse when you look at it at that's how how the operations work yeah. because people like you and I have to actually take a financial hit and we have to suffer so that these these things can be implemented in other parts of the world, which we don't agree with. Mm -hmm. Have you seen the video of Freeland commenting on Ukraine from 2014? No. One final thing I will say, I think sometimes when people talk about Ukraine and Ukrainian reforms, uh, there is a view that the only issue is making changes which are expensive. That's not true. There is a lot that Ukrainian government officials can do right now to improve the economy that costs absolutely nothing and in particular the corruption which everyone knows has been absolutely endemic and has been a huge, huge barrier to growth, a huge cost. Fixing that doesn't need to be expensive. So we've got, yeah, Christia Freeland commenting on the out of control corruption in Ukraine uh, about a decade ago and now, you know, sitting here and saying that you are an extremist if you question where this money is going or how this f these funds are being spent or if we're just getting robbed. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's exactly what's happening here. The large majority of this money actually, they didn't really clarify where it was going. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they said some was a loan. Um, the reality is, look, like you can argue that, you know, you should provide military support to an allied nation. Not really sure that's what we would consider Ukraine. Um, depending on how you consider what you look at as an allies and, and what, what organizations or groups they have to be a part of and how that works. Because um, they're not in NATO, they're not in the EU, you know what I mean? Um, no issue with them, I just, you know, they were a neutral state, let's put it that way. But that's 320 million, right? That's 10% of this budget. The, the other 3.2 billion, where's it going? And, and there's no, and the thing is they've said this repeatedly, is that there's no real strong oversight um, on Ukraine's part for all of the funding they've received to fight this war, the hundreds of billions of dollars they've received. The only thing we know for sure, what we can say for sure is we're wasting a lot of it on frivolous programs, and we know that a lot of it has gone missing since it's been there. Like those are those are news stories in the in the mainstream media. Oh, this this many millions went missing, this went missing, we don't know where this is. We've lost over a billion dollars in munitions. It's like, okay, cool. So we actually know that you guys are totally fucking things up over there. So yeah, I mean, I think it's totally reasonable that people are asking questions. Um, 
But at the end of the day, Trudeau's got a, basically he can he's, he can do whatever he wants. He's got a blank check to write these guys and no oversight. So what are we going to do? Uh, all right. And the last story for the day is the Liberals appealing the court ruling of the Emergencies Act being unjustified. So Trudeau's government has appealed a federal court decision that deemed their invocation of the Emergencies Act in response to the 2022 Freedom Convoy protests as unjustified. This appeal challenges the January ruling by Justice Mosley, which argued the act's use infringed upon constitutional rights and lacked proper justification. The government has contended in their appeal that the court relied on hindsight, overstepped its authority, and misinterpreted the charter. Instead, the government argues that the court should have assessed the reasonableness of their belief that a public order emergency existed and justified the invocation of the act. So will we see this overturned, do you think? I'm 50-50 right now. I'm 50-50. So I actually think they made a reasonable argument with... Um saying that the court had the advantage of hindsight. I actually think that's a reasonable point to make. Mm -hmm. And I think they've got... I think that they can make a case to say, here's all the information we had at the time, so this is why we made this decision. And now that we know what's happened, obviously that's, that's, an, easier, that's an easier call to make. Yeah, okay, maybe we wouldn't have done it. And I think it's just a matter of how they manipulate the information that they're able to provide to the courts to say, here's what we had, and this is why we made this call. I don't know how much of that is open, and available, but I think that's a reasonable argument. However, questioning the court's authority or their understanding of the Constitution, I, I can't imagine that will go over very well. So if I had to say, hey, look, if there was no um, influence involved here, would this get turned over? No. But because um, the Liberals have been, they've been, this, this has caused them a significant amount of trouble, right? So when you consider the mess that they're in, and then, you know, the influx of lawsuits that have happened because of how the, the original court ruling was laid out, I think that the Liberals are going to use every tool they have to try to get this overturned. So again, I'm 50-50 um, because I think there still is a substantial amount of influence from the federal government within the court system. So I think it will be, um, I think more than anything, it'll be a good litmus test to sort of understand the extent of the government's influence over our judicial system. So I think that's what we'll get from this. Yeah, I think that's the big takeaway here as well is whether Canada's uh, justice system is completely compromised or just mostly compromised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I don't even know if I buy the hindsight argument. You could make a proper... You could call for that, but when we know that first they used local authorities, or they said that local authorities were asking for the Emergencies Act, that never happened. Mm -hmm. The A lot of the information that they were basing their opinions off of were provided by CBC and weren't like CSIS intelligence and all of this kind of stuff. Then we also saw with like the Coots border that they broke that up very peacefully, very easily. They didn't need extreme measures for that. Um, and then also just all the lies that were made in their narrative about why this posed a danger to Ottawa or Canada at large. So when we know that everything along their way was lies that not only just seemed like they got something wrong, but rather that they were fabricating evidence, that they were fabricating narratives. I don't know if the hindsight argument stands up. I, I can make, you could definitely make that case if it was like, hey, this is all the information we had at the time and we were just doing our best with it. 
but when it turns out that all that information they had at the time was essentially crafted by them yeah. and made up to suit their own narrative, well, that whole hindsight argument kind of goes out the window. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I don't disagree with you, and I think if this was just being done on its merits, it would not get overturned. However, I think that they've got... You know, the courts are a funny thing. Sometimes they don't really work the way you would think where everything gets included or everything is involved. And I think there's also the argument to say, like, you know, if ultimately Trudeau had to make that decision, if it was his call, let's say he's the guy, that he's the one that has to press the button, how much or what can he argue in terms of, well, this is the information you have, but this is all the information I had. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, where is that disparity? Is he allowed to claim a certain amount of ignorance so he doesn't look like a fucking idiot to say, well, I didn't have this bit of information, so I went on this. So based on this, this is the... This, like, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to play out. Um, but it'll be interesting. Like, they must, have, they must have a plan of attack here. We all lose here no matter what, right? We're funding... All of the money that Trudeau is using to to to, to um, appeal this—that's all coming out of our out of our pockets, right? Um, but so whether he wins or loses, is we lose no matter what. So we're funding we're funding all that, and then if he loses, the people that sue the government, well, that's also going to come out of our pockets. So no matter what, this is just a terrible situation for Canadians. But it is actually important that we get the precedent, like the wins for the people of Canada even though it's, again, going to cost us more money. Anyway, I just think the whole thing's a pain in the ass. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Anything else you wanted to add today before we get out of here? Nope, that's it. That's all. Right. It, that's all. Well, don't forget to head over to our website, blendernews.com, B-L-E-N-D-R news.com, in order to sign up for our newsletter, which goes out six days a week. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everybody.